So a very warm welcome to you on this, the 13th of February. This morning, um, we're going to be looking at um, Acts chapter 10 through to about halfway through chapter 11, and Duncan will be preaching on that uh, later in the service. Um, It's a fantastic story of how um, Peter and Cornelius came together, of how um, the gospel really reached out from um, the the, the Jewish believers that had uh, started the church um, in Jerusalem and out from there into the much wider world, into what was known as the Greek world, and uh, really down breaking, as the, as the sermon is titled, Breaking Down Walls, uh, that gospel to what was known as the Gentiles uh, being spread and really the, the revolution that that brought. Um, so we're going to read through that. Um, it's a long reading. Okay, so uh, we've split it into three parts. Sharon is going to start the reading in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, and then I'll continue that, um, and then Duncan will finish it when he begins his sermon. So Sharon, would you like to, uh, would you like to start with uh, the first part of Acts chapter 10, please? Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1, and I'm reading in the ESV. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.' But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. 
and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Continuing at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are the witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Well, let me add to Nigel's welcome. Thank you so much for coming to be with us today. And uh, yes, we come to God's Word. Please turn back with me to Acts 10 and 11. And uh, I'm going to hold off reading Acts 11 until a bit later, uh, but we will perhaps refer to it. So if you have it in front of you, that will be a big help. You know, God's plans are big. God's plans are big. And some of you here might think that sounds overly optimistic, especially when we see how small and how 
non-influential the church is in Scotland today. But it's true. God's plans are big. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which was written more than two and a half thousand years ago, God spoke to His people Israel and promised to send someone who would be their rescuer. He's described often in the latter part of that book as the servant of the Lord. And on one of these occasions in in chapter 49 of Isaiah, we're allowed to listen in to what God says to this servant of the Lord. He says this, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What God was saying to his people was that his plans are big, that he's not going to send a rescuer just for the descendants of Abraham, just for the Jews. No, Jesus has come to be a rescuer for the whole world. And yet, as we've walked through this book of Acts on Sunday mornings, it's this bigness of God's plans that seems to be in question. The book of Acts recounts for us the story of the early church from the time when Jesus went back up to heaven. It then covers the first, give or take, 30 years of the church, of how Jesus continued his mission and built his church. And so, as you know, now we've reached chapter 10. And up until now, it's a story about how Jews, or those very closely related to the Jews, have come to faith in Jesus. Up to this point, God's big plans have remained decidedly Jewish. Wasn't God's plan supposed to be bigger than this? I think what's hard for us to grasp, being so far removed from these events described in the book of Acts, is just how many things were in the way of God's big plan becoming a reality. The Jews were very much, to say the least, a distinct group. The the whole point of, of much of their practice was to make them distinct from the rest of the world. And there were a number of ways in which they separated themselves from Gentiles, which is just another word for non Jewish people. The Jews, they had their laws, which meant they strictly observed holy days. And what comes to the fore here is that they regarded certain foods as unclean. And so it actually became, in their minds, impossible for them to have any sort of meaningful engagement with non-Jewish people because, well, they embraced the things that were unclean. And so a Jew could not eat with a Gentile. He would not even enter into their home. How on earth was God's mission going to reach those non-Jewish people when so far it had only reached Jews who had this ingrained prejudice against Gentiles? God's going to need to break down this wall. 
And in this portion of Acts 10, that's precisely what God does. Undeniably, absolutely emphatically, he tears down these walls. These verses describe for us four days that changed the world forever. I bet you weren't thinking about this chapter quite like that when it was read. Four days that changed the world forever because they reveal God breaking down walls. And so in chapter 10, the first 23 verses, we have days one and two. And here in days one and two, we find God preparing the site. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he uses this this effective device where he, he cuts back from one scene to another, from one scene to another, until they get closer and closer, they overlap and they become one. This has the, it's got the benefit of showing us just the precision of what God is doing in these days. I mean, if, uh, if Paul McCartney had never gone to that church fete in the late 1950s, there's a good chance he might never have met John Lennon and the Beatles would never have existed. Now, some of you here may think that would be a good thing or a bad thing. But I mean, this was a seemingly chance encounter that ultimately, like it or not, changed the world. But the coincidences here in Acts chapter 10 are nothing like Lennon and McCartney getting together in the 50s. Nothing like it at all. Luke wants us to see that God was undeniably active in bringing these events to pass. It is God who moves people. He moves them geographically. He moves their hearts. He changes how they view the world around them. And all of that is preparing the site so that he can break down these ancient walls. And so we start in verse 1 in the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, which tells us he's a soldier. He's got some authority. He's responsible for a hundred men. And he's located in Caesarea, an important town uh, located on the Mediterranean coast. But crucially, Caesarea was not a Jewish city. It was predominantly populated by Gentiles. But we learn more than these bare facts. We learn about this man's spiritual life. You see that in verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms or he gave charity generously to people and he prayed continually to God. When the New Testament uses this this term that someone feared God, he was a God-fearer, it usually means, in Cornelius' example here, he was sympathetic. He was in agreement even with the content of the Jewish religion. So, he believed in God. He accepted the Jewish code of ethics, but crucially, he had never converted to Judaism. He was a a sympathetic observer from the sidelines, but more than just an observer, it had impacted his life, and that's what we see here, isn't it? Uh, What stands out is he is a man who was seeking God. He's praying continually. Here's a man who was looking to do what pleased God. He was generous in giving to those in need. But for all of this in Cornelius' life, there is something that he still lacks. 
Now, we can find this a little bit confusing, because if all that we had about Cornelius were these first eight verses, if that's all we had to go on, we could assume that, well, Cornelius was a good guy, and because he was a good guy, that made him right with God's. Could very easily fall into that trap here. But it becomes clear as the details fall into place that actually when we encounter Cornelius, Cornelius here, he's on a journey, he's on a spiritual journey, and he has not yet reached the destination. And this becomes clear, we're going to read chapter 11 later, where Peter is called to account to explain himself for this shocking behavior. Um, and he recounts Cornelius' experience in verse 14. Um, Cornelius is told, verse 13, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So, for all of these qualities that Cornelius had, all of these positive spiritual things that seem to be going on in his life, God sends the angel to say, there's something you need, Cornelius. Send for Peter. He'll come. He'll tell you a message, and it's by that message you will be saved. There was something he still lacked. He had heard about God. He had seen God displayed in the spiritual life of the Jews who lived all around him, and he'd responded to that. Here he is earnestly seeking God's and God recognizes that seeking. He recognizes what we could even say, that faith that he has exercised in response to what he'd already seen and heard. And God doesn't ignore that. No, God moves to bring the clear gospel message about Jesus right into this man's home, that he might hear about Jesus and be saved and it's God who's at work here. So, I said it's undeniable. This is not just mere coincidence. I mean, when a glorious angel appears in someone's house and delivers a message from God, you've got no other alternative than to say God is at work here, right? And that's what's happening. The angel appears and says to this centurion, send for Peter. He's 30 miles down the road in Joppa. Send for him. He's got something to tell you. The site has been prepared here. The wall is ready to come down. But here's a question. Why do you think that the angel didn't just tell him the message? I mean, the angel has gone to all the trouble to appear to Cornelius, who needs to hear this message about Jesus. And the angel says, no, I'm not telling you. Go and send for this guy, and in three days' time, he'll tell you. I mean, almost you want to say to the angel, just tell him, just tell him. Well, there's at least a couple of reasons why the angel doesn't tell him. First of all, we're shown throughout this book of Acts so far, and for the rest of the book as well, that this is God's pattern for how the church grows. One sinner tells another sinner where to find forgiveness. And if I could say here, friends, we don't get to sit around and hope that God will send an angel to tell others about Jesus Christ. No, the commission and the promise of fruit that comes with it 
is that those who believe in Jesus tell others about him. This is how God's promised to work to build the church of Jesus Christ. It will almost certainly be the case. If you're a Christian here today, it will almost certainly be the case that there are people whom you know that for them, you are the only Christian in their lives. Now, why do you suppose God has put you there? Why has He given you those particular family relationships that come to mind? Why has He given you that school friend that comes to mind? Why has He put you in that particular part of your workplace? Yes, of course, it's to be fruitful in those relationships, but in doing so, it is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Now, could God reach them in some more miraculous way? Well, of course, He could, but what has God told us is the means by which He's going to reach people with the gospel. It's by ordinary people like you and me telling them. No, we don't get to say, well, God could, if God wants to reach them, He could reach them. You be sure that is the case, but here's what He's told us. By our ordinary efforts, we reach others with the, with, with the message of Jesus. Not angels, ordinary folks like you and me. But there's something else here. The reason the angel doesn't just simply tell Cornelius is because this isn't the story of simply Cornelius's conversion. This is the story of Peter's transformation as well. God wants to transform the apostle Peter, preparing the site for breaking down the wall requires work to be done in Peter as well, and if anything, more work to be done in Peter. And that's what happens on day two. Peter is in Joppa. See that verse nine the next day? So day two, we move 30 miles down the coast to Joppa. Peter's living with Simon the Tanner. Simon's got a lovely house right on the beach overlooking the Mediterranean. Peter climbs up onto the roof at midday. He's going to pray And what he wasn't expecting was to fall into a trance. That's how it's put here in verse 10. That is that he's taken, almost taken out of himself somewhat uh, so that God might speak to him. God God is getting his attention here. And Peter sees a memorable vision, a large sheet descending from heaven, coming down to the earth, and it's full of all sorts of animals. And the command comes, rise, Peter, kill and eat. The detail in the story is that Peter's feeling hungry, and he tells the guys downstairs, start putting lunch on, I'm going to pray, and then God does this with him. Peter, get up, kill, eat. Now, remember what we said earlier about the Jewish commitment to eating only those animals that God has declared to be clean? Well, on that basis, Peter refuses. He refuses. No way, Lord. No way. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the thing is, um, even if there were uh, clean animals contained within the sheet, such was the Jewish law code that animals had to be slaughtered in a certain way. They had to be bled in a certain way. It was never just an option to simply kill the thing and eat it. And the next thing that Peter hears sums up this whole section of the book of Acts. 
Verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, you know how sometimes you need things repeated. Um, Don't forget, uh, you're picking up the kids from school today. Uh, Did you you hear me? Did you hear me? Don't, don't, Don't forget, you're picking up the kids from school today. Okay, well, I'll see you later then. Remember, you're picking up the kids from school today. Um, That's not autobiographical, I promise. (laughs) But that's what we do, isn't it? To make sure that someone takes in something important, something you really don't want them to forget. And that's precisely what happens for Peter here. This routine the sheet coming down with the animals in it, the command to kill it, the refusal to do it, and then the message, don't call what God's made clean, common, three times. Three times he goes through it. Verse 16 has happened three times, and then the whole thing is taken up into heaven. More than that, this particular principle that's declared there in verse 15 is restated four times in our passage this morning. You see it in verse 28, verse 34, into chapter 11, verse 9, and verse 18. And so you see, it's not just Peter who needs to get this message to sink in. Luke writes it this way to say to us, you need to let this message sink in. And God's timing is perfect. Because just after midday on day two, who should arrive at Simon's door but the three messengers from Cornelius. Peter's still mulling over this vision. We're told he's perplexed. What could it mean? Why would God do this? And God provides clarity through a knock at the door. Three Gentiles urging Peter to come to their master, a Roman soldier. And God keeps giving Peter the nudge that he needs. And I I, I don't think God is in the habit of speaking unnecessarily just for the sake of it. And so when the Holy Spirit says to Peter in verses 19 and 20, there's three men coming looking for you. Go with them without hesitation. I take it that Peter would still have been inclined not to go. And so Peter receives the news that God has been at work in Caesarea and he welcomes them in as his guests. God prepares the site. And then comes days three and four. Peter takes six Christians from the church in Joppa and he travels with these Gentile visitors all the way to Caesarea. They need to have a stopover some way along the way. When they get there, there's a crowd waiting for him. And Cornelius shows real deference towards Peter. We're told in verse 25 that he falls down on the ground and worships him. Um, It may be that worship is, is too strong a word there, but whatever. You see, Peter has learned, hasn't he? He says to him, get up on your feet I'm not superior to you. I'm a man just as you are. Peter's been learning things here. And I wonder if Peter 
ever again had such an opportunity for the gospel as you read in verse 33. Cornelius says, I sent for you and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. I mean, just think about what Peter has been through so far. Throughout this book, we've already read of Peter having stints in prison, being threatened and beaten and warned to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And now he's summoned before this small crowd and they say, we are desperate to hear what you've got. Come on, we're hungry. We're starving here, man. Speak. He'd never had anything like it. Peter had no idea what God was doing just 30 miles down the road from him. And it turned out when Peter got there that God was doing something that Peter surely would have thought was impossible. God was moving in the lives of people whom Peter may even have thought God shouldn't be moving in the lives of such people. Moving their hearts from one place to another. God intervenes to prepare for this great moment when the power of God is unleashed and the walls come tumbling down. And what is it that achieves this? Is Peter going to do some more of those miracles that we saw him doing at the end of chapter 9? Is that what's going to tear these walls down for these Gentiles? No. He unleashes the power of God as he declares the message of God. And what is that message? You see that runs from verse 34 down to verse 43. Let me sum it up for you like this. Peter first of all says, I've come here to tell you, having only just learned this myself, God has no favorites. God has no favorites. There's none of us that get a head start with him in the pecking order. There's none of us because of where we've come from. None of us because of what religious system we've been brought up with. That God somehow says, no, you're my favorite versus him. Not at all. He says to them, we all come to God on a level playing field. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And the heart of the good news is about Jesus himself. This is what Peter wants to get across to them. The good news about Jesus himself. So he tells them about Jesus' life and ministry. Of how he had a life that was, uh, he went about doing good. You see that verse 38. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is the kind of life that Jesus lived. A life of goodness a life of power, empowered by God, victorious over the devil. He then speaks about Jesus, how they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, verse 39. And it's an unusual way of putting things, isn't it? We, we wouldn't usually talk about Jesus dying on a tree, but here in Peter's mind, at least, there is this allusion back to uh, if anyone… There was this curse pronounced for anyone who was hanged on a tree. And so what's he saying here? He's saying Jesus died to be made a curse. He had this accursed death. But of course, the good news doesn't stop there. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day. 
and caused him to appear. He speaks of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection and appearing. And all throughout this, he keeps emphasizing that this is verifiable from witnesses. He says to them, he's able to say to them, these residents of Caesarea, he says, you yourselves know what's been going on in this region of the sort of life Jesus lived. He says, you yourselves know. And then he says, we are witnesses in verse 39, of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in, the, and in Jerusalem. He says, and we are witnesses too of his resurrection, and we have been sent to bear witness. And then he has a final point, which he says the prophets bear witness to. Verse 43, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the same message that we want to declare to you in this church week after week. There is no other message. It's a message that has lost none of its power. It's a message that has lost none of its capacity to cross boundaries of race, of ethnicity, boundaries of education, of class, of immigration status, of vaccination status, of whether you have a checkered past or not. This is a message that crosses all of those boundaries. This message, this good news is for all. The good news needed by all. Good news for you today. So that whatever it is you think today stands between you and God, whatever it is you think that keeps you away from God, separated from Him, whatever it is you think is the reason why God could never have anything to do with someone like you, this message tells us to be assured God breaks down every wall to bring a sinner into His family. We are sinners deserving of God's judgment. That wall is destroyed by Jesus who suffered the punishment for our sins on the cross. I haven't lived a good life. What on earth would I say to God? I haven't lived a good life. God tears down that wall because Jesus lived the perfect life of goodness and obedience in our place. But I'm a mortal. I've sinned. I'm going to die one day. How could I ever have life with God? God has torn down that wall because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead so that all who trust in Him will rise too to eternal life. Now, all of those walls are real. And Jesus tears everyone down for the one who comes to him in faith. Come to him, that's the promise. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone. And you see what God does. It's remarkable, actually. You get the sense that, that Peter, he didn't, he didn't get to finish his sermon. I imagine he would have gone on to say, you must repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't need to get that far on this occasion. 
These folks were ready to receive Jesus Christ. And the mark of that is that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And God does something extraordinary here. Because he needs to get across to these Jewish Christians who are there that he really has brought these Gentile believers into the church, into the same church that they belong to. And so the same filling of the Spirit that they saw at the very beginning is replicated here as these Gentiles come into the church. In Acts chapter 2, which takes us right back to the start, the first disciples, they're filled with the Spirit, and we're told that they spoke in tongues. And it's explained to us there this miraculous ability from the Holy Spirit to speak in a language that was, that was not known to the speaker, but known to the listener. And so I suppose what happens here in Acts 10, as these Gentile believers speak in tongues, is that the, the seven Jewish Christians who are there, they hear them speaking in, what, Aramaic, in Hebrew, or whatever local, uh, local languages are represented there. And Peter recognizes what's going on here. And in verse 47, he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he says that sort of thing again over in verse 15 of the next chapter. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And it's interesting to me, Peter doesn't say um, the Holy Spirit fell on them in the same way that we've seen time and time and time again. I mean, this is seven or eight years later since the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. No, he says there's something unique here, something that takes us back seven or eight years to the beginning. God is opening a new chapter here. He, He wants us to see that these Gentiles are as much brought into the family of God as we are. In other words, he's having his eyes open to see God has broken down the wall. The same Holy Spirit dwells in every believer, regardless of their background, regardless of how long they've been a Christian. When they trust in Jesus Christ, this is what This is what transforms them. This is what gives new hearts, new desires. This is what changes someone. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within. And when you look at another Christian, you look at another dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Cornelius' vision is recounted four times for us in our verses this morning. Peter's vision is told to us three times, twice in detail. Luke, who puts this book together, he says, do not forget this. Do not miss this. There will be some who would rise up in the church, and we'll see this in coming weeks, who would tell Gentile converts that to be right with God, they really had to become Jews. They had to observe all of the Jewish law code. This, these chapters are here to say, no way, no way 
It says God made sure of it. God did this. God saved these guys as they were. They didn't need to become circumcised in order to become Christians. They didn't need to say, we'll never eat pork again in order to become Christians. No, the Holy Spirit came upon them in all of their perceived uncleanness. And it's the same for everyone who comes to Jesus today. Whether we think they deserve it or not, whether they are our kind of people or not, God made his dwelling in these Gentile believers. And it's as if God says, they're clean. They are clean enough for me to live in them. Don't you dare reject them. And this lesson is vital if the church is going to be the church. Surely you can see the mission of the church is stunted if we don't learn this lesson. Because there will always be those who, well, we just don't think they would fit in here. When we start to think like that, we dare to say what God calls clean, we call common. And what is that challenge for us as Bankery Christian Fellowship Church? We are our own community here with its own challenges, with its own unique demographics, but who are those in our community who we would, who we would think that God probably won't do anything in them? Maybe we could be even more personal and say, who are those people in our own families, in our own circles already, who we think eh, God would never do anything in them? Peter didn't know what God was doing. And Peter was, humanly speaking anyway, he was the main man in the church. He didn't know what God was doing. Who knows, as we carry the gospel and as we pray to God, let us pray for those places that sometimes seem to us to be on the other side of the wall. Ask God to tear those walls down. But you know what? If we fail to learn these lessons of Acts 10 and 11, it's not just the mission of the church that is stunted. It will be the unity of the church that gets destroyed. Because we all come our own road to the cross of Christ. And very often it doesn't look like someone else's road. We come with our own baggage. And very often it doesn't look like someone else's baggage. And indeed, sometimes even people just irritate us. And we come back to Acts 10 and 11. And God says, they're clean. I dwell in them. Don't you dare reject them. And so in the spirit of what Luke is doing in Acts 10 and 11, I want to close really by, by reading this last section. Because this is something you see, and it's always something to look out for. When, when the Bible keeps repeating something, it's because it wants you to take it in. It's like before you go out the door the third time, they say, remember, you're picking up the kids today. This is what Luke's doing again in Acts 11. And so we had four days that changed the world. This is days five plus. The church grows. Listen to these words. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, 
you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, he had to select the things he would include. There are things that we wonder why he didn't include. You know, when Saul was converted, he went off to Arabia for two or three years. Luke mentions none of that. Luke had to be selective, and yet he decided to be abundantly repetitive when it came to the story of the conversion of Cornelius. And the reason is because it is really that important. Peter comes under suspicion from the circumcision party, that is, those who would go on to say, well, in order to be a true Christian, you have to follow the Jewish law code. You'll need to be circumcised, and that's all going to come to a head in Acts 15. And what Peter does in response to that is to simply say, let me tell you what God has done. He says, this wasn't my bright idea, wasn't my strategic thinking, let me tell you what God has done of His own initiative, of how He has saved these souls. And I love the way He puts that. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? This passage is the beautiful reminder of the unity of the church. And we are going to celebrate that uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And uh, of course, what we're doing here is we are remembering the Lord, these things that, that were so precious to Peter, this power of God unleashed, this message about Jesus in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection to life. And that's what we want to remember here. But also in doing this together, we're declaring our oneness. This is the beauty of this feast. 
You, don't, you can't really do it on your own. You need to be with other believers because this is such a crucial part of it where we say, and look what God has done, not just for me, but around me. 